Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So I'm not sure whether to be worried or pleased, but I did not get the presidential emergency alert text message. That means that, that when the apocalypse comes, you will not be in the know. I, I'm not your guy. <laughs> you're not, you're not going to get a heads up. You'll just be surprised when you are bodily taken into heaven. Yes. Whereas I got the alert on my phone while I was conveniently in the bathroom. Oh, well, that's and, a place you don't often hear from the president. Actually, no, you hear from him in the bathroom. And unfortunately, we you hear If you hear from him in the bathroom, it's because you're getting fired. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, this was not uh, a personal message, but it was a presidential message. It said so right there on the screen. Because we have established why exactly it has to be a presidential message. Like, what is the is, – is it to give it extra authority? Yeah, I'm it? imagining Americans saying, oh, it's a presidential message. I should pay attention. Except with this president, they're saying – Oh, God, a presidential Him message. Again. <laughs> a presidential message is like it's called Twitter. Um, right. No, I, I tweet alerts on my phone already. I, I didn't get it either, cause, but that's because I was in this podcast studio with my phone on airplane uh-huh. mode recording a podcast, and that is one way of tuning out the president. No, I, I think it's because the White House has a little list, and you guys are both on it. Yeah. We'll die blissfully. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the This Is Not a Test edition. I am Shane Harris, unalert reporter, unalerted reporter. That's right. What kind of reporter <laughs> is unalerted? You're pretty alert. <laughs> I'm pretty alert, but not when it comes to presidential emergencies. Actually, there's presidential emergency, it seems, almost every day, and I'm quite alert to most of them. Uh, yeah, that's good. But we're here in the new jungle studio. We're going to have our phones. Well, they're not off, but I'm not expecting any alert text messages Coming from the president. I can only handle one presidential message a day. That's all I can say. That's really too much. Enough is enough, man. Enough is enough. Basta, as they say. Basta. (laughs) Basta. Boy, is that word ruined for me. Isn't it? Because I got to say, in principle, I like that as a slogan. Yeah, I, I, I actually think it has a lot of content and integrity and under normal circumstances, I think hashtag Basta would be something I could get behind. But nothing involving Michael Avenatti is anything other than dead to me. And Like hashtag go in, leave me alone. I kind of feel about <laughs> him the way I feel about presidential messages at this point. If the, if the presidential message said Basta... <laughs> What would you have done? Okay, this is a test of the national presidential alert system. Basta. Basta. <laughs> I would collide. have. I would have worried that a populist right wing president was replaced by a populist left wing president. Michael Avenatti, twenty twenty. Oh God. I'm here in the new jungle studio with Mark Hoffman-Wittes and Ben Wittes. Hi guys. Hey Shane. Hey. Susan is not here. This is like this is like OG podcast. Oh yeah. 
Well, yeah. we haven't done this in a while. I know. But, you know, I miss Susan when she's Susan not here. Too. There's an empty chair over there. It just doesn't true. feel right. It's true. It's true. This is the original rational security. That's right. Yeah. That's right. We're going to bring it for you old school. <laughs> With shit sound. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? What? <laughs> <laughs> This week on the podcast, the Trump administration accuses China of a massive propaganda campaign in the United States. Facebook suffers a serious hack that exposes 50 million users. And all laughing aside, what do we make of the administration's performance at the UN General Assembly? Let's start with the the, the China story, which we're recording this on Wednesday, and Vice President Pence is going to make a big speech on China on Thursday, which maybe we'll talk about next week. So this is a little bit of a preview. But um, this issue has been getting a lot more traction, maybe not exactly for the reasons that the administration thought. The president, a week before last, when he was at the UN General Assembly, said China is engaged in election meddling. Uh, A senior administration official had to hastily get on the phone with reporters to explain what he meant by that. And while he went through a whole series of things that China is doing uh, from state-run Chinese media operating in the United States, uh, placing advertorials in newspapers, harassment of university students, harassing people on social media when they speak out against China, none of that was election meddling per se, at least not as we understand it in the Russian context. But it does seem that the administration is now... Now, clearly making this push to start calling out China for what we would call information operations. Um, so <clears throat> one question I have is, A, does it seem like to you guys this has been a long time coming since China has been engaged in a, in a lot of this activity for some years and it certainly can't be news to this administration or maybe it is. We can talk about that. Uh, and sort of B, what do you think is behind doing this now? So I I think that what China has been engaged in for years is what we call information operations or influence operations or, you know, some of it would qualify as public diplomacy, right? Um, So an advertorial in a newspaper, there's nothing covert about that. There's nothing even underhanded about who's behind it or what its purposes are. It's from the Chinese government. And it literally it's, says China Daily on those right, right. to go and the post and other papers have had them before. Right. And you can say the same about Chinese government television. You know, you can debate about whether it should be registered under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which is a topic we covered a couple of weeks ago in the podcast. But, you know, it's pretty clear what it is and where it's from and who's behind it. So, you know, how nefarious is it really if the influence is so out in the open? I think the the stuff that um, is worth a little more attention is the kind of sharper edge of this type of influence effort, um, harassment of students, but also co-optation of students and of universities and sometimes of high schools by setting up these Chinese language institutes that are funded by the Chinese government or by organizations linked to the Chinese government that teach the Chinese language, but they also teach a Chinese government narrative along with the language classes, harassment of of Chinese students in order to keep them from expressing opinions not in line with the Chinese government. That's, you know, to me, much more troubling because it is directed at constraining a conversation in the United States about China. And that, to me, is what we need to be on guard against. Yeah. So people will remember if they have particularly long memories that before Russia was the new China, 
China was already China, mm-hmm. right? And so there's a little bit of a, oh, yeah, r- remember the other big cybersecurity actor. And China, you know, was responsible for the OPM hack, was responsible for, you know, the great, greatest uh, movement of intellectual property from one world to another world, right? All those things that we used to think of as cybersecurity were China until we got hugely distracted by Russia. And China never went away. So I do think remembering that China exists and exists as a cybersecurity bad actor is healthy. I think accusing it of the wrong things is really unhealthy, right? And what we're what the president here is trying to do is to accuse China of all the things that people think of associated with Russian bad act by way of distracting from the issues of Russian meddling in the election. One thing China's not particularly, doesn't seem to be particularly doing is meddling in U.S. electoral activities. So the focus on China is right and salutary and valuable. But like everything about the president, focusing on the right thing in, or even sometimes the right thing, but getting the nature of it entirely wrong doesn't really help very much. And so, you know, there's a serious issue here, but the serious issue is not Chinese electoral interference and, and you're not going to distract or at least you shouldn't be able to distract from real Russian electoral interference with fake Chinese electoral interference. I guess we can't rule out the possibility that the Chinese are also interested in exacerbating our political polarization for their own purposes. I haven't seen any direct reported evidence of it in the way that we, you know, we have evidence of the Russians doing the same thing. But it seems to me reasonable that that's something to be on guard against or to look for. But as with a lot of things from this president, what you can't tell is whether he talked about Chinese behavior in this way uh, out of ignorance and just confusion and he didn't really pay attention. Is this election meddling or some other kind of meddling? And it, you know, Or was it a deliberate strategy right. to distract from – allegations about Russia. And, you know, we don't know, I don't think we'll ever know. And I I wonder sometimes if it's worth trying to parse that. Well, it's interesting. So, I mean, I don't know if I can answer the question, but there was an interesting sort of little TikTok as this went uh, after the president made this this comment in New York at the UN General Assembly. You know, I mean, in our newsroom, multiple people just sort of stopped and said, wait, what is he talking about? That precipitates calls to suddenly your sources that are saying, wait, are we detecting something that we didn't know about? Because (laughs) intelligence officials and congressional testimony had all said that Russia was the one that they were seeing with these ambitions and and more than ambitions actively carrying out these kinds of active measures even in advance of the midterms and no one else was on that list. So as I mentioned earlier, the White House kind of hastily arranges this call and what was fascinating was the senior administration official who kind of got on the call and got off as quick as he could had a whole list of things to go down and kept punting to Mike Pence saying, Vice President Pence is going to address this soon. He's going to say this. There clearly was a strategy in place and and I think a desire on the part of the administration to start talking about, you know, these really seriously aggressive steps that have actually been you know, bedeviling FBI and intelligence community officials now for many years, China sending, for instance, 
agents to the U.S. to conduct intelligence operations and, uh, you know, sending them here under false pretenses, even more outside the normal norm of kind of wink-wink false pretenses that we send people here. Well, and the industrial espionage. Absolutely, which the FBI stuff, yeah. has been pounding the table on for successive administrations. And, you know, and, and to the, to the, the president kind of stepped on the line a little bit. And what I wonder is if he had seen these reports coming, that knowing this was going to be rolling out and kind of picked a moment in front of the world to try and push this other narrative that he has in his mind, which is, oh, everyone does stuff like this. Right. Election interference, oh, everyone does it. Yeah, so, so right. There's lots and lots of problems in the world. And, you know, the South China Sea, Chinese uh, aggressive behavior in the South China Sea, you know, is not electoral interference, right? And, you know, like Messing the, with you does not equal electoral interference. Putting yeah. lots of Uyghurs in concentration camps, really, really, really bad. Not that uh, there's any evidence that President Trump has a problem with that. No, no, but it's not electoral interference, right? And not all bad things that you can accuse China of are electoral interference. And, you know, I do think it's a little bit too forgiving to say, well, we, we can't show that they're not interfering in the election. That's true of the Canadians, too, by the way. And, you know, and, who have obvious preferences. Right. And, and as well, they Pretty much should. of the world has obvious preferences. And so, I mean, I, I do think like, like the issues that we have with Chinese behavior are real and very serious. And, you know, I have been concerned about them for a long time and I'm not going to I'm not going to say a word in China's defense of, on any of them except by the way on the public diplomacy side where they do you know they want to buy ads in newspapers and publish their own stuff that's fine with me that's you know that's overt it's above board uh, and I don't have a problem with it but you know some of the other stuff that they do is very aggressive and I think we should be very on guard about it and it's not electoral interference okay but I I think, look, we're going to get this speech from Vice President Pence at the Hudson Institute um, later in the week. And, you know, we'll see exactly what the narrative is that the administration is going to lay out here. We know in the national security strategy, the Trump administration identified China and Russia as, you know, not just competitor states, but adversary states. Um, these are the major, you know, challenges or threats that I, the United I States should be that. organizing a whole of government response to address. So, but between those two, there's clearly one that the president is more interested in picking a fight with right now, which is China. And this started as a trade fight. And initially he said, you know, we want to be able to cooperate with the Chinese on North Korea and keep talking about other stuff. But trade is a big problem. And what we've seen over the last couple of weeks as this trade war has escalated and the rhetoric has escalated on both sides um, is that the administration is already rolling out tougher policy toward China across other policy fronts as well. They made a big arms sale to Taiwan. They flew some U.S. bombers over the South China Sea. So they're, you know, they're already bleeding a trade dispute into other areas. And now it sounds like Pence is going to roll out a kind of comprehensive critique of the Chinese role in right. the world. And I guess my real question is, how much do they really mean it? Or rather, how much does President Trump really mean it? It may be that the national security professionals in his administration and maybe even other senior political appointees would 
see China as a comprehensive kind of strategic challenge in this way. But it seems like what he's really interested in is getting a better trade deal and going back to being buddy-buddy with his friend Xi. So, I think so, that's exactly right. So, so but he, Well, but there's also – so if that's what he's doing and he's leveraging other things to put pressure on China for no, trade? No, 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 no. That's giving, that's giving too much credit. I'm not making that argument. I'm saying – his administration may be using his temporary hostility toward the Chinese on behalf of their own strategic policy agenda, but he could very easily cut them off at the knees. Right. But there's something else that he's doing, which the best analog that I can think of too is when he responded to uh, the proliferation of fake news in support of him by starting to label conventional journalism, particularly negative journalism about him as fake news. And he appropriated the term and he started uh, using it very aggressively. And now the modal use of the term fake news is Trumpists dismissing the Washington Post and the New York Times, not broader dismissal of Russian propagated Macedonian based you know, bullshit that uh, that shows up in people's Facebook feeds. And that is what he's doing here. He's adopting the term electoral interference and he's shifting it from a use in which it is offensive against him that he has to defend against. You are the beneficiary of electoral interference by Russia to an offensive use of the term by him in the context of, I agree, what's ultimately a trade dispute, not a serious set of, not a serious attempt to address a set of national security concerns. So I agree with you that one element of it is, you know, posturing against China, but one element of it is appropriation of a term uh, that has been used against him to use to weaponize against others. I'd, I'd just like to say, Ben, it's a little too early in the day for discourse analysis. <laughs> like, like, whoa, man, that was meta. <laughs> but you might be right. All right, I'm done. I'm just going to have another sip of scotch because like that's that was I, I got uh, I got to meta. Very good. Uh, well, you mentioned um, bullshit showing up in your Facebook feed. <laughs> and by the way, I got an email this week from somebody who really earnestly comp- complained about the language on this podcast. <gasps> and I just want to say I'm sorry about my inadvertent just now use of the word uh, BS. And I, I'm going to try to clean it up. But I think that actually – so actually I would say there's – I would say a word in defense of bullshit. Um, which actually Fareed Zakaria used on his show. No, he actually he was on Don Lemon's show when he talked about this some years ago, months ago. God, how long has it been? Every day lasts oh. a week. But he talked. Days. But he talked about he talked. He used the word precisely to talk about President Trump and when he's out, sort of selling things and exaggerating things. He used the word bullshit. Well, and, and CNN and did not bleep it. And Quinta wrote an incredibly brilliant essay about this right. early in the Trump administration about bullshit and the oath of office. I think when you're using bullshit in that context. It is perfectly appropriate. It's the, the Harry Frankfurt yes. sense of bullshit. So, we, exactly. that's how, so that's how we're using it, dear listeners. Yes. In it's a not a bad word. It's socioclinical a, It's sense. a scholarly word. It's a scholarly word. Yeah. <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of Facebook, uh, so Facebook has announced that it suffered a really serious uh, hack, both in terms of number of people affected, 50 million users, but also sort of when it, going to um, – really one of the core functions on the site. Yeah, this isn't a hack. This is like 
ripping open the wall yeah. and just, you know, breaking it down. Yeah, I mean, essentially, I think, you know, in, in very lay terms, uh, essentially, the mechanisms by which you log into Facebook and stay logged in. And importantly, also, the same mechanism that allows you to, on other sites, use your Facebook ID and password to log into those services Which as well. Which you should never do, You people. should never do. If you listen to this podcast, you probably never do that. I'm sure none of our listeners would ever do that. I just didn't even remember my Facebook password, so I just... <laughs> Just stay logged in all um, the time. But I want to start with actually kind of a something of, I guess, a provocative question. It's not so much about the security itself, but, you know, here we have this massive platform used by many millions of people, not just to, to go on and engage in social media, but obviously also as a form of credential that logs them into many other online platforms and services that they engage with every day. 50 million of these users exposed. This is an organization that is now under tremendous unprecedented scrutiny for the way that it not only was co-opted by a foreign hostile power that tried to subvert our elections uh, and help the president get elected, uh, but also the way in which it allows or doesn't allow certain content to be on the site. Um, it's spending untold millions of dollars now on security, which is actually having an appreciable, demonstrable effect on its bottom line and its profit expectations, which will probably diminish the value of the stock. How does Facebook go forward as a viable concern? I mean, I'm not trying oh, to sort of be a Oh, and don't forget here, that but. in the face of this hack, they're now going to be under the scrutiny of this massive European investigation right. under the new data privacy regulation. So, you know, who knows how deep that will go or how long it'll go on. And it'll have a massive fine probably at the end of it just because of the size of this breach, like how many yeah. people were affected. And so – that also affects their bottom line and their long-term viability. Which makes me think if you add all these things up, I mean, I don't mean to be hyperbolic, but how is Facebook not a major security threat to tens of millions of Americans given all of these That's events? why my mother never got an account. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, you know, she's one of these people who like, you know, used a fake name for her phone directory listing way back in the days of white pages because – she just doesn't like having her private information out in public. And she never got a Facebook account because she never wanted to put any of her personal life into some company's, you know, data bank. And boy, she's looking smarter and smarter. I will say all of these platform companies, arguably Google less than the others, but all of them have externalized the security costs of their operations. You talked about this over Schneer recently. Over yeah. a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Schneer has been arguing this for more than 20 years now. Uh, and I've been arguing it for not just about or principally about the platform companies, but the platform companies are sort of an extreme example of it. And, you know, because the companies don't bear the costs of uh, the they don't bear the liability of problems that arise from them as a general matter that started that's changing the costs of the security are largely borne by the user which is to say if you if your google account gets broken into and you're john podesta say and it you know costs hillary clinton the election that is not a subject that's going to convey liability to Google. 
right? It's it now maybe and maybe it shouldn't. I'm you know I'm not making a normative argument here. Over time, that is not a sustainable proposition. And what we're seeing with Facebook now, and uh, the point that they are likely facing some incredible liability under the European privacy rules is a good example of that. We are starting to rethink the question of how much of the security costs of securing these platforms should be borne by the companies themselves. And that is why these massive investments in the security are taking place and they're diminishing the profitability of the companies because we're sort of making a social decision that you know the entirety of the burden of security should not be the financial cost of security should not be borne a risk of security should not be borne by the user and to some extent we're having that conversation about all sorts of you know sort of software and hardware now like how much of the risk does the user bear how much of the risk do other companies bear the platform companies are you know very vulnerable to this discussion they have had a particularly uh, i mean all software vendors have you know particularly generous liability regime over a very long period of time and we're starting to have like our stomachs clench a little bit and say wait a minute can we do that and almost any answer that you give to that question other than you know heck you give your you give your information to facebook uh you're you know whatever happens happens you know almost any answer to that costs more money than the answer we have used over the last 20 years Tammy, do you think given i mean the we take these just sort of undeniable security risks and these vulnerabilities that you know we all expose ourselves to by using this platform but it's also been a mechanism in other social media platforms too for organizing protests and for for dissidents to be able to get the word out about what's going yeah, on in their all countries. All kinds it, of civil society. Yeah, it has a huge democratizing function too, right? Well, so this is, I guess what I'm saying is this like is this is this part of all <clears throat> part of the big balance when it comes to companies like this is that yes, on the one hand they are exploited for electoral manipulation and it, you know you you have your Passwords stolen by God knows who, but, at but the on the other time, hand, you, on the other side of the ledger, you have Farmville. <laughs> right. <laughs> I was so, going to say the Arab Spring, but you know, <laughs> but Farmville too. But sure, or yeah. Fortnite. Um, I no, I don't think it's the Great Balance in that sense. I think that you know, yes, these social media platforms enable swift organization for collective action, but they also enable much more uh, efficient state surveillance uh, of users, you know, and Facebook is a company that's been entirely willing to cooperate with autocratic governments in facilitating their surveillance of users on Facebook. It's been very ready to uh, shut down um, civil society organizations' platforms on Facebook when they are falsely accused by governments or by government-linked individuals of violating Facebook rules, uh, so sort of targeted harassment of these organizations and activists. So I, I think it's a pretty mixed picture in that regard. But what I would say more broadly is that, you know, every open society has civil society. It has independent organizations and civic spaces and conversations that are independent of the government, right? That's one of the hallmarks of a society that's not a completely repressive autocracy. And what's happened to us and to every other 
Western democracy is that our civil society, our church groups, our you know support groups, our activist groups have moved online. They've moved onto these social platforms. It's much less common that you will make those connections in the real world physically meeting in somebody's living room. It's much more likely that you're going to meet up in a Facebook group and play an activity together. And so what Facebook has, the power that it garners from that is either in very subtle ways using its algorithms and structures to to direct the way people organize, but also to gather all the information about that organization and maybe share it with governments or with others who wanna who wanna interfere with it. So to me, you know, that's that's the heart of the vulnerability, but it's also the heart of the promise. Societies need to be able to organize independent civic activity somehow. And if Facebook becomes a platform that's no longer trusted that way, if I don't feel like I can safely go to my, you know, uh, sexual assault survivors group on Facebook, you know, then I'm going to find I'm going to create that capacity somewhere else. Well, and, and we haven't even mentioned, you know, the Cambridge Analytica scandal with Facebook and, you know, giving over just enormous amounts of user data to people who I think the company now would say never had any business having it in the first place. So taking all that into account, and, and Tammy, as you rightly point out, that so much of activism and organization has moved online to a place that not only may not be secure, but may be, you know, vulnerable to government totally manipulation too. Yeah. Right. And it's clearly vulnerable to state manipulation insofar as the Russians were organizing people for events that didn't really exist. Um is there a breaking point here with 50 million user data and users data now being compromised? I mean, are we that much closer to regulating social media or do you guys think that the appetite for that is just is not there right now in, in, uh, well, in I Congress guess I, I mean, or in the executive? My question would be if these companies' profitability is declining for the reasons that you guys already discussed and – users are feeling less safe in using the platforms for all of these activities. And governments are upset and want to shift more of the security burden to the companies as opposed to the individual users. If you put that all together, then does it become more likely that these companies ultimately get regulated like public utilities? Public utilities are regulated that way, partly because they're not very profitable. You know, the electric company is not going to be a huge moneymaker. And so it doesn't mind becoming a public utility. It's actually, it's a way of getting a guaranteed profit, just not a really big one. And so, you know, maybe the conflict between the private tech sector groups and the governments who want to regulate them more becomes less severe as their profitability declines. So first of all, I don't know whether the profitability decline is a long-term thing or or a short-term thing, and I wouldn't I wouldn't consider it inexorable. I think there is a lot of appetite for a different regulatory environment. There is also a major dysfunction in Congress, and the idea that you could pass anything serious that would be valuable and thoughtful and creative is uh, seems far-fetched, frankly. Well, the um, idea that you could pass anything in this legislative right, environment but, is far-fetched. But, but, but more particularly that Congress is going to do the work to think through what you would want – what direction you would want to regulate 
in I actually doubt very much that uh, appropriate regulation in the U.S. looks a whole lot like the GDPR. Um, I don't know what it looks like, and I don't imagine that very many people in Congress have a whole lot of good ideas about it. So I'm not sure that the problem, honestly, is a problem of appetite for there to be a different environment than there is. I think it's a legislative functionalism, functional dysfunction problem combined with a genuine uncertainty about what operating environment would be a better one. Now, that is certainly a conversation that we should have as a society and we should think about what are the things that Facebook should and shouldn't be allowed to do. But I got to say, all these changes that I'm see that you see all over the web now as you go around that people to make things G GDPR compliant, that all amount to click through this. We're going to send you some cookies. Okay. Click through this. You, we're going to send you some cookies. For GDPR, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and you're not even going to read this. You're just going to click through. Right. I'm just going to click through. You know, none of that strikes me as especially consumer protective in any meaningful sense. It's all just sort of butt covering in, in the most sort of silly way. And so I'm, I'm, count me as a skeptic that we both that we know what direction we would want to regulate in and that we have the legislative capacity, even if we did know what direction to go, to actually go in that direction. Just be like my mom. Just get off Facebook. I'll tell you what the number one threat to Facebook's long-term viability is. Yeah. My 19-year-old niece does not use Facebook. You know. And it, none of her friends. Yeah, my kids don't use it either. I wonder whether in 20 years it's going to be seen as like this flash it's be in the like pan. Friendster. No, Remember because Friendster? they're going to they're going to have kids. And they're going to want to share share pictures of oh, them. Oh God! With it's going to be where you oh, your so obligatory photo sharing for your uh, uh, for for your parents' generation. She's I, just going to Snapchat her kids to me. Yeah. Yeah. With cute frames. Totally. She Snapchats me all the time now. <laughs> I still don't really fully understand how to use Snapchat. I'm not going to lie. It you don't want to. You don't want to. I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. You know who else doesn't use Snapchat? President Trump. And while we talked about this is a bad segue, <laughs> last week he was at the UN. So now we're going to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> and people but, laughed at him. God, so we're going to laugh. That was, <laughs> that was like that was rough. That was some rough segue. Yeah. I got oof. that was segueing over gravel. That's got, what that was. I got scars on my knees on that one. Um, but last week we spent a fair amount of time talking about President Trump being laughed at at the UN General Assembly, but. There was also the UN General Assembly. There was Tammy, all the rest and a lot all of the other happened. 193 world leaders. Right, precisely. So there was some uh, some uh, stuff that happened vis-a-vis -vis Iran, vis-a-vis -vis Israel. Uh, what are some of the big highlights that we should talk about um, that we missed in all of the stand-up comedy that was going on? So there was actually quite a bit about around Iran and the issue of Iran's relationships with uh, the signatories to the JCPOA. The Israeli prime minister had a big reveal in his speech about Iran, which is now becoming a subject of dispute with the UN agency. He responsible likes to for make big reveals about Israel. About in, Iran in, the, in his speeches. Uh, Iran in this forum. Yeah. And this yeah. one didn't have a cartoon bomb. It actually had a real photo. So, um, so and Iranian seriously. President Rouhani was at the UN and doing a lot of um, quiet diplomacy with Europeans. A lot of press, uh, too. 
a lot of press, you know, a couple of meetings with sort of track to academic scholarly Americans uh, and with this whole sort of more in sorrow than in anger tone about American withdrawal from the JCPOA and increased pressure of sanctions. So, um, but Netanyahu's big reveal is that the, he claimed that Israeli intelligence had discovered an undeclared facility in a neighborhood of Tehran that is storing massive amounts of information and nuclear material that the Iranians are hiding from the IAEA. He gave us all the Google Maps coordinates of this place, and he showed us a photo of the front gate, and he turned to the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency and said, you must send inspectors right away to this location. Um, and the IAEA had responded a few days later saying, you know, thanks for bringing us the information, but we'll evaluate all of this ourselves before we decide whether we need to inspect. Um, so I, I think on the one hand, it's just part of Netanyahu's consistent drumbeat that the international community should not place any faith in Iranian compliance with its JCPOA commitments and that the Iranians are cheating and they will continue to cheat and this deal is a bad idea and you shouldn't try to preserve it. So that's largely a message to the Europeans, to the Russians, to the Chinese, and to others who want to trade with Iran. But I think it's also Netanyahu trying, and I think this speech clearly was trying to remind all of Israel's adversaries that Israeli intelligence services are extremely capable, mm -hmm. uh, far beyond the capabilities of most states. They do daring stuff. And he, as a head of government, is, does not shy away from using that intelligence and putting it out in the public sphere in order to name and shame. Um, he also uh, released some information about uh, alleged Hezbollah missile building factories in Lebanon. And so that's, you know, that's a warning uh, that we're watching you. We're going to see what you're doing. You're not going to get away with anything. And uh, we don't mind, you know, even potentially, I don't know, but um, we don't mind revealing this stuff in public, even at the cost of maybe sources and methods. So you mentioned, you know, he's given speeches like this before where he reveals some powerful piece of evidence acquired through phenomenal intelligence capabilities that Israel possesses. Um, but we're still sort of in the same dynamic where we were those previous times did it. Of course, the big exception of that being that the administration is pulled out of the JCPOA. But I don't get the sense the administration is gunning for invasion of Iran either. I mean, Trump wanted to get us out of the Iran nuclear deal. He ran on that. He associates it with Obama. Um, but I'm not sensing a whole lot of now ratcheting up of the pre preparations to sort of go uh, invade Tehran over some of these things. So, I mean, are we sort of still in a kind of a status quo position? U.S. policy, rhetorically, is not just in a status quo position. It has not only repudiated the nuclear agreement, Secretary Pompeo announced the sort of 12-point policy, or rather a list of 12 demands that U.S. policy uh, wanted to impose on the Iranians and that the U.S. would seek to enforce through increased sanctions, potentially, you know, covert pressure, 
uh, diplomatic pressure with allies in the region and so on. And, you know, this list of 12 demands includes, you know, stop sponsoring terrorism abroad, remove all of your troops and sponsored militias from other countries around the region. In other words, you know, abandon Hezbollah, pull out of Syria, you know, and and by the way, would you become a Jeffersonian democracy? And then we'll lift sanctions. So it's a very- Just do these 10 things. Right. It's a very unrealistic set of asks that- Although it, it would make Iran a far better country if they complied. <laughs> like it would be really good for the Iranian people if they complied with- Oh, n- no question. No question at all. Mm-hmm. You know, but in, in that sort of hard-headed world of international politics- or else what, right? Um, there's just no reason for this Iranian government to interpret that policy as anything other than bent on regime change. And you but know, wait, but it's but it's interesting. So I mean, Bolton was even asked about this in a White House press conference today. Uh, and took the opportunity to say, once again, it is not the policy of this administration to seek regime change in Iran. Do you think I mean, Do you think the Iranians really believe it is or is it more just a useful strategy for them to insist that that's what we're about even though I don't – I really don't think that we are and they must know that we're not too, right? Well, it, it might well, be – Well, regime change – there's regime change – 2003 Iraq style. Sure. And then there's regime change of like, would we like protesters in Iran that are continuing to put pressure on the government to rise up and overthrow uh, uh, the leaders of Iran? Sure. We'd be totally down with that. Right. So, you know, is it regime change in terms of how President Bill Clinton wanted to see regime change in Saddam's Iraq, but didn't really do much about it? Or is it George W. Bush's uh, preference for regime change in Iraq? I mean, that's that's really the, the difference that we're talking about. I think it is certainly convenient for the Islamic Republic to have the United States government take such an adversarial posture because it means when they face trouble at home, like this horrific terrorist attack at a military parade mm-hmm. in a, a provincial town uh, a week or so ago, they can blame the United States and they can use that to deflect attention from you know real domestic challenges. They can put additional pressure on domestic dissenters by painting them as treasonous allies of the great Satan. So yes, it's absolutely convenient for them. You know, but but it's also not it's historically reasonable for the Islamic Republic to see the United States as fundamentally hostile to their regime. They overthrew an American ally and occupied our embassy and held our diplomats hostage for 444 days. They sponsored terrorist activity that targeted Americans, including the Khobar Towers bombing in Saudi Arabia, as well as a host of other things. They, you know- Marine barracks bombing. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's, there's just- Plenty of evidence that they actually really are deeply hostile to the United States and that they would not be unreasonable to assess that the United States is fundamentally hostile to them. Uh, The president also reaffirmed his support for the two-state solution in the peace plan, right, at the UN? Well, he he said that he – thought it was probably his preference among the available <laughs> yeah, options. That's, yeah. That's as close One as we're state, get. two states, three states, four states. Right. So but look at that's an improvement states. because, you know, the last time he spoke to this, as Ben just referenced, he sort of said, well, you know, one state, two state, whatever the parties want. So, <laughs> you know, the interesting question is whether his decided now expressed preference for two states reflects that 
there's been some progress on the development of a Trump peace plan. Maybe maybe there is a Trump peace you plan. You think Jared's about Two ready states. to to, let, to release it? Yeah. Yeah. Gonna unveil a big unveiling. A big I reveal. Somehow doubt it. You doubt that the you doubt you, do you doubt there'll be an unveiling or do you doubt that it will be all that impressive? Well, I, I am I've long been of the belief that there are no new ideas in Palestinian-Israeli negotiations. I mean, the same groups of people have been having much the same conversations over a very long period of time, and they're they're quite smart, actually. And a lot of Israelis have been tolerating Americans with new ideas for a very long. Yeah, time. Americans often come in with this idea that you know they're gonna they're gonna shake it up, and it's really just a question of have political you will. Of this right? Well, there's <laughs> there's two pathologies. One is the I am going to develop the Middle East peace plan that no one's ever thought of before. And that's like actually kind that's of – That's the Jared Kushner Right. It's kind pathology. of insulting to the parties. What you actually find out is that the parties are very smart and they've thought of the ideas. And the problem is that – the problem is not a problem of like, wow, we just never thought of, you know – moving Hebron over here before they, they've thought of the things you know it, it's there's a there are constraints on people's ability and willingness to do things but it's not that they haven't thought of them and the second pathology is it's just a question of political will we you know we were at the point where there need to be hard decisions and people need to have the political will to make them and you know that, that at some level that's true but it's not like if you tell them that really loudly, they're going to be like, wow, you're right. I just I just need to show the political will. You know, and- I've, I've developed a theory about political will, actually, which applies not only to the Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, but to all kinds of political endeavors, which is that political will is like stone soup, you know? It's just all you got to do is take the stone and drop it in the water. Well, but if we had cabbages, it would be so much better. And by the time you add, you know – economic incentives, uh, coalition building, um, effective domestic politics, uh, good messaging, then you've got great political will, right? (laughs) And so, I I mean, I I guess my bottom line is, you know, when a bunch of neophytes declare that they're going to go to the Middle East and, you know, really just talk to the parties and go on a listening tour. And then they're going to unveil a big peace plan that's going to you know, wow everybody. And by the way, along the way, they serially side with one side on all of the major issues, thus giving the other side no reason to engage the process at all. Uh, show me the money. Show, show me the peace plan that you know everyone's going to be excited about and that it's going to you know usher in a whole new era of good feeling in the Middle East. I'm willing to be persuaded. I'm always willing to be persuaded, but I don't start with a you know deep reservoir of assumption of possibility here. Don't hold your breath. <sighs> oh, no, I couldn't even take it that long. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, I'll go first. I'm going to do some log rolling for Ben, actually, with my object lesson, which was that you had a terrific interview uh, with the what do we call her? The moderator, the founder of high school. I, SCOTUS? I, think, of, I think of her as the impresario, the impresario of, of, of high school. Yes. SCOTUS. Uh, Anna Salvatore, right. Uh, who uh, interviewed you a couple of months ago, I think for a profile that she, she contacted you 
uh, and you have now returned the favor with an interview with her. I won't give away all the things that she talks about of how she started the blog and how she's got this community of people. It's really worth listening to. Uh, she is 16 years old, which is kind of shocking. I mean, this is most 16 year olds are not only not this articulate and poised, but this ambitious and organized. Um, but it's really great. It's a reminder of the fact that there are hopefully a larger number than one and her army, but a number of kids out there who really are deeply interested in civics and in government and yeah, are doing something with that. This is America. It is. So it I actually, is. can I, can I, I appreciate your mentioning this. Can I just add something to mm-hmm. it? Because this is like, I get a lot of requests from young people, usually not in high school, usually college or law school, uh, to meet up and chat about career stuff. And, you know, over the last couple of years, I, I used to have a rule that I, everybody got one meeting. And over the last couple of years, I've had to moderate that a little just because my schedule doesn't really permit everybody to get a meeting anymore. But the email that I got from Anna Salvatore, I, it was probably about six months ago now, was something genuinely unusual. And she referred me to the site, which is uh, really quite impressive. And also to this series of other interviews she had done with uh, journalists and Supreme Court practitioners and sketch artists and, you know, people who kind of do stuff related to the Supreme Court. And the interview that she did with me was uh, better researched and more interesting than probably – 95% of the uh, professional journalist interviews that I've done. It was a little less polished in some ways, but the quality of the preparation was astonishing. And I forget, it may have been Oren Kerr or it may have been uh, somebody else uh, tweeted when he read it that it was that he'd known me for a long time and he'd learned a huge amount about me from this interview. And so I just want to say, like, when a high school student gets in touch with you and asks you for an interview or asks you to engage, uh, do it. Uh, it's really, it's really worth your time and it's really easy to say no to those situations. But, uh, there are a lot of, like, people get interested in you professionally for all sorts of reasons and they're usually good. Yep. You know who took your advice and did an interview with a high school student that was incredibly revealing and interesting? Jim Mattis. He he did an. He inter- called me before he accepted that interview uh-huh. and said, "I'm I'm I'm really thinking about should I do <laughs> you this one with this?" And I and yeah, are you no, okay I, with the high school student interview thing? I and I said, think, "Jim, do it." Yeah, I I think That's it was an interview Damn with a God. student from his old high school, if I remember right. But I, it w- I saw it on Twitter and I read it and it actually gave us a little more insight into the mentality that Jim Mattis yep. brings to his work than anything else I'd seen him do. They, they ask different questions yep. than other people will. So one of the questions that Anna Salvatore asked me was a question no journalist has ever asked me, I think. Like, wh- who were the teachers who made a big impression, you know, who really made a big impression on you? And she got me talking about my experience as a student, which is actually not something that I talk about in any other context. Because it was so traumatic. <laughs> yeah, I was not a good student. And, and you know, there are a lot, one of the defining things about me professionally is that I'm not conventionally educated. And, 
And nobody ever gets to that because people don't ask me about high school and they, you know, don't ask me about my college experience. Tammy, what's your object? Um, so my object is a lighthearted, lovely little piece of news brought to you by Hayes Brown on BuzzFeed. Um, and, you know, you're going to appreciate this, Shane. We love Drew Barrymore, right? Oh, sure. Right? So the Egypt Air in-flight magazine, which is called Horus after the Egyptian god, uh, has this interview with Drew Barrymore. It's full of photographs. She's talking about- Famous Egyptian national Drew Barrymore. (laughs) (laughs) No, she's, she's just talking about how she's taken time off work to be a mom because that's actually the most important job. She tells the magazine that she thinks it's really important that women work to lose weight and get back their beauty because it's actually not that hard. And you read this and you're kind of like, boy, this doesn't sound like Drew Barrymore. Drew Barrymore talks about being a working mom and how awesome that is. And Drew Barrymore is about body positivity and and so it turns out that it's not at all clear that this interview with Drew Barrymore actually ever happened. What? It's a great story. It was um, – this interview was spotted, by the way, by a journalist named Adam Barron who does a lot of work on Yemen and must have been flying Egypt Air and came across this magazine and tweeted it out. But Hayes uh, and BuzzFeed called up Drew Barrymore's publicist who has no record of this interview uh, this is the, fake news. The, the photos seem like they were taken from other interviews or news stories about Drew Barrymore. The whole thing is just the weirdest and wow. wackiest thing. So, yeah, I don't know if it's fake news, if it's like connected to news. How does this connect to rational security? I, I think it's just, you know, the world really cares about us. They even care about our Hollywood stars so much that they will invent interviews with them yeah. to put in their in-flight magazines. I, that's my talk about. Also, it's just awesome. What a good story. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a, it's such <laughs> a crazy <laughs> story. So thanks, Hayes, for writing the crazy story. Uh, ben, what's your object? So I want to tell you about my interview with Drew Barrymore this morning. <laughs> <laughs> so Brookings uh, today had a half-day event on uh, the state of and future of the rule of law in the United States. And one little component of this was a 10-minute interview that I did remotely with Drew Barrymore. Um, <laughs> actually, it was with Ken Starr. Oh, um, <laughs> I mix them up all the time. All the they time. look alike. <laughs> Loved him in Firestarter. They've, they've both, they're both really uh, into uh, being working moms and body positivity and that. Um, Man, just don't talk about body positivity and Ken Starr in the same sentence, okay? <laughs> so, um, Ken who, of course, is famous uh, for his report to Congress on the uh, Clinton impeachment matters and the Monica Lewinsky matters, I asked him to talk about the expected Mueller report and what he's expecting uh, Mueller to uh, do with that report, what form he expects it to take. Uh, And he gave some very interesting speculation on that regard that he thinks Mueller will be much more reserved than he was for lots of reasons related to the statutory framework in which he was operating in that doesn't exist anymore. But in some ways, the most interesting thing about the interview, uh, which is a 10-minute long thing and is available on the Brookings website for those who want to see it, 
is the extremely strong endorsement he gave to the integrity of Bob Mueller and his confidence in the Mueller investigation. And also, and perhaps more importantly, the comments he made about Rod Rosenstein, the deputy attorney general, who cut his teeth working as a young prosecutor for one Ken Starr in the Office of Independent Counsel. And in what I could only assume was a message to the president, Ken Starr gave a very powerful uh, endorsement of Rod Rosenstein's uh, integrity and competence and seriousness. And uh, it really, if you could subtitle it in that Annie Hall kind of way where, you know, there's what people say and then there's the subtitles that are what it means. Uh, and this were subtitled for Donald Trump. I do think it is not crazy to subtitle it, you know, Mr. President. It would be a devastating mistake to fire Rod Rosenstein. Well, ballast when he needs it, I guess. There you go. Well, that brings us to the end of another podcast, you guys. Oh, Drew Barrymore was not here with us. She was in spirit. <laughs> and we'll make did, up did an interview. Hopefully, with her. Did she, hopefully, did she your perform- Egyptian magazine will chop this podcast up into an did interview she perf- with like did she perform the music this week no we haven't gotten to perform the music yet oh okay Just because first it. i have to remind you that rational security is a production of lawfare <laughs> where is it available Shane? uh egypt air magazine <laughs> 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 or on the lawfare website whenever you follow us so you can follow us on twitter at ratl security you can follow us on facebook although I'm not sure we've given such a ringing endorsement to Facebook. Yeah, follow us on Facebook. Boot us off real soon. Kick us off there real fast. Whenever you download the podcast, please make sure to leave us a rating and review. We really appreciate it. Audio engineer this week is Michaela Fogel. Show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Mark Zuckerberg and his new emo solo album, Unfriended. Ooh, nice. I had a Brett Kavanaugh one too. <laughs> Save it. Save no, it for no. later. Brett Kavanaugh is the elephant in the room. I've got a Brett Kavanaugh band. (laughs) No, no, just don't do it. Could do it next week. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. You can tweet it. Go ahead. No, I'll wait. All right. Should I wait? Because by then it may may be like justice (laughs) Brett Kavanaugh. (laughs) You know what? I'll save it for next week. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And Sophia Yang can do the real music then too. On behalf of my friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman Wittes, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Brett Kavanaugh. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. 